This week on Writers Inc. There's authors that, you know, they probably turn red if you ask them if they were an artist, you know? Like there's some that are like, oh, no, 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 I'm not an artist. Like, cause the, that word sounds pretentious or something. No way, I'm all about that, man. Because I think that the, the mistake there is that the word artist isn't as serious as some people think it is. And, and I think that um, I absolutely have a healthy relationship with the art itself where there's like this respect. That doesn't mean that you can't write the most messed up thing in the world. Of course, it doesn't mean that, but it means respect. Like, um, let's say you're working on a, on a rough draft and you got wasted with your buddies last night. And so you wake up and you're like, Ooh, and you're, and you're like supposed to do this thing in the morning. Guess what? You gotta go do it. You gotta work on it because you can't not do it because of what you did last night. If you finish the book and then you and your buddies have, and then the next day, take the next day off. Yeah, that, that's fine. But don't sell this book short for anything. Like I was saying, for partying, for uh, for love, for um, relationships, for for anything. Don't sell the book you're working on short. And the, I think that that respect is the kind of thing where, like, when you see it um, on a shelf, like a Barnes Noble or an indie store anywhere. It, it's almost like you feel the respect back from the book. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Zach, your favorite queen moment, go. Uh, my my favorite queen is probably when they played, what's the big concert they played? Wembley. Um, Wim, the Wembley Stadium. Yeah. Totally agree, That's probably man. my favorite moment having to do with queen. Love it. Yep. I totally agree. How about you, JD? Favorite is that queen the band moment? that Adam Lambert sings for? Those guys? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love I love Queen. Um, and, and the movie's good. Um, but yeah, like <laughs> I, I, Freddie Mercury is just one of those guys that just kind of vanished way too soon. It, we just it made, lost made me very British sad. Fans. Probably. I, I just oh, yeah, all, all the British fans we've grabbed over the last couple of weeks for this British invasion oh, we've God. had going on. You know, I, I didn't, I intentionally did not, <laughs> didn't set that up and you guys both just jumped right on it. Man, we are in sync. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> well, you weren't, you weren't planning on talking about the old lady that died overseas, right? Who? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Too soon? Too soon, probably. <laughs> I mean, she was 96, you know, like that, that's, yeah. that's a nice ripe old age. I mean, honestly, like if I was Prince Charles, I would be pissed, you know, because like she became queen at 25. And she lived to 96 and here's her son going, I'm going to be king one day. You know, as, as soon as, as soon as mom goes, I'm going to be king. And I mean, she lives to just one day. Yeah, it, finally. yeah. So now he's, he's 74. He's finally king. Um, yeah. Like oh, that, that stuff just, uh, I, I don't get it. Um, I'm, I, I know it's huge over there. They, they love the Royal family, this and that, but, um, I just don't see the, you know, the, why they put a family up on a pedestal like that. And the money that these people rake in, I guess we've got the Kardashians. So that's, that's our version. <laughs> No, I was going to say, it's really cool if you're British, but if you, you know, live in Des Moines, Iowa and you're crying, it's a little it, weird. It, is it cool though? Like if you're British, like, yeah. Are you, I, I, I don't know. Well, we're really digging this yeah. hole early, aren't we? What's our producer's name? He might need to edit some of this. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, can you take the un-British stuff out of here? <laughs> the intro is going to be down to two minutes. Um, 
I, I've got I've actually got a writer related question for you guys. Let's do so, it. Uh, so I, I, I'm looking over at my my to be read pile and like I've got a ton of books over there. And, you know, like I, I tend to pick one up. I'll read like 10 or 20 pages if I don't like it. And I put it aside and I kind of start the next one because I've got so many of them. Um, but I'm seeing a trend and I'm just wondering if you guys have noticed this, too. Are, are more and more books leading towards present tense as the, the main storytelling voice instead of past tense? Or is this, uh, or is it just a thriller thing? Because like most of these are thrillers, so I got, I guess I got to profess it with that. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll speak. I know Jay's been reading a lot of thrillers and stuff lately, but uh, I, I think that I definitely do think it can be genre. Like, I th- but, um, but, but I will say, like, now that you've asked and I'm thinking about, it, I think I have seen a little bit more of a trend in that. Like, even in even in the other stuff I read. Um, uh, well, Jay, what do you think about that? It's an interesting question, JD. I don't know if it if it's the collection of books that you happen to have or if it's a wider trend. Uh, I just finished the Riley Sager book. Um, I forget the title. It's the Final Girls one. Um, and that was first person, present tense. And uh, I really liked it. Um, I, I, liked, I liked the combination of first person and present tense. I don't know. Are, are they mostly first person as well? No, it's it's both. Um, I mean, a first person present tense. That's that's obviously you're right in that character's head and you're in the moment. I think present tense tends to make it feel, you know, like it, it's just a little bit faster, like because you are in the moment. Um, yeah, this is it's one of those things that I just I guess I've always kind of latched onto because you know, on writing by Stephen King is kind of like my Bible when it comes to writing anything. And in that book, he says that present tense should be reserved for short fiction and past tense should be used for for long fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I called him out on that when Mr. Mercedes came out because he wrote that book in, in present tense and um, he sent me this long email back explaining why. And I think I, I told you about this, but it, it made perfect sense. You know, like he he basically had a lot of flashback type scenes in the book that he wanted to, to do. Um, so he felt it made a lot more sense to write the book in present tense and write the flashback scenes in past tense. Um, you know, because from a psychological standpoint as a reader, like your brain picks up on that and it just, it seems more clear. Um, and I guess he's always struggled with it. And if you go back and read one of his earlier books, like the shining, you know, it's written in present or written in past tense, but he's got flashbacks and the flashbacks are written in present tense. Um, so he's, he's kind of reversed that, um, his latest book, I, I just finished that one a couple of days ago. It's, it's called a uh, fairy tale and that one's in um, past tense. Um, but his reasoning behind that makes perfect sense because it's told, um, in first person from the main character's point of view but he's basically 27 28 years old when he's telling the story about something that happened to him when he was you know 16 17 years old so it's a, a story that took place in the past so like that makes sense but i just i, I picked up three books today um before we started the podcast and and all of them were present tense and all, all thrillers but you know just you know if you go back 10 years and you pick up three books and even thrillers you know the bulk of them are going to be past tense so i'm just thinking from a writing standpoint when i start my next project you know should i you know begin leaning that way it's funny. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and um, I think it was actually sparked by an email that one of you guys sent or something um, regarding something else. And um, I, I've, I'm like really itching to write present tense now. Like I'm writing third person past tense and I really want to do something present tense now. I've been thinking a lot about the last couple of weeks and, um, and I think first person too, just cause I feel like you can, really just you just it's so much easier to really get inside the character's head doing that and um i remember too jay i, it, I don't know if you remember this but when you and rachel did a podcast a while back it was i think it was an episode when you guys were doing writers well and um where she made the point and i was like this makes total sense where when we tell stories in real life we usually tell them in present tense you know like we we i mean naturally we do like 
all right, so I walk in the door, I walk in the room and there, you know, she's sitting over there on, or whatever, you know, and I was like, that makes a lot of sense. So like, that's the natural way we are known to like tell and hear stories. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I love as a reader, I love the pace of of present tense. I think it does feel faster, even though it might technically not be. What I've discovered, because um, the project I'm working on now, I'm writing first person present tense, and I think I asked you guys your opinion on this before I started it. And uh, and JD, you you gave me the Stephen King advice. You're like, go present tense and then use past tense for for flashbacks. And what I really like about it as an author, um, from the author perspective, is that I don't have to know what happens in the rest of the story. If I write it in past tense, I kind of do, right? Because if you yeah. think about like, you have to hold that entire story in your head from the very beginning and, you, and you're going to have to plant seeds or you're going to have to drop hints or clues because technically as the narrator, you know exactly how this is going to turn out. Whereas in present tense, you don't have to know that. And to me, for me, that took a big burden off my shoulders and I could just write in the moment and develop that suspense or that tension that would naturally come from, from the narrator not knowing what's going to happen. Well, I guess the only dynamic that really shifts there is you can't really do any type of foreshadowing. You know, because obviously if you're speaking, speaking in a present voice, you can't talk about, you know, something like that. It, so that wouldn't work. Um, my biggest hang up just as, as an author is, you know, if I'm reading something in present tense and I sit down to write, like the words that come out of me come out in present tense. And like I have to catch myself doing it. I have to tell myself that's present. It's not past. I have to go back and edit the last paragraph or whatever I just wrote. And then, you know, I can get my brain to make that switch. Um, but, you know, it's just that, that's kind of clunky. Um, you know, when you are that close, it, it can be difficult, too, because if you're, you know, first person present tense you are right there in that lead character's head which means there's a lot of other story that you can't tell unless you find some other way to jump around um through in that story so you have to keep that in mind one interesting thing too about present tense um and i don't want to spoil the story what what series it was but a book series i really enjoyed i think it got to like eight books um i remember it was it was i think it was first person present tense and the main character dies at the end and the this the last book literally ends on an m dash like because he's in the middle of a sentence when he dies and and i so that's really interesting too because if you're doing past tense then you know you couldn't do something like that or it'd be especially if you're doing first person it would be much 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 harder are you if you're doing third person, you could do it. But if you're doing first person present tense, like you couldn't, I mean, it'd be much, much harder um, to, to pull something like that off. Um, a re related question. I, I know both you guys have dabbled with dictation some. Do you find it easier to dictate in first person? Yeah. So when, when I dictate, like I, you know, when I go on these runs and walks every day, I, if I come up with an idea for something, I dictate it into my watch and then my watch has a program on there that translated in, into text and it drops it on my Mac. So I've got it there. Um, but I, I tend to, if I'm, you know, if it's dialogue, I'll speak, you know, like in that character's voice, like I don't actually do the voices, but you know, like I, I run the words as if it was, you know, real dialogue. Um, you know, if the story is in first person, I dictate it in first person. If it's in third, I dictate it in third, um, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's funny you brought this up, Zach, because uh, I was just talking to to Chris Kane about this. Um, I think I'm, I'm I think I'm pretty much done with dictation at this point. Okay. Um, I, I've dabbled with it; it's worked well for me in the past at times. But right now, and on this project that I'm working on, I'm writing sort of a dialogue only first draft, but I'm inserting emotional. Um, emotional updates within the dialogue so when i go back i remember what what the character was feeling and and using this um i'm writing every day for an hour and i'm getting 2500 words 
I'm really satisfied with that and yeah. I enjoy it and it's not taxing on my hands. So I just really have no reason to like go back to dictation at this point. That makes a lot of sense. So I've, I've been dealing with some carpal tunnel issues. So I've kind of gone back to it a little bit more than, than I had before. So, um, yeah. So, cause I kind of go in and out of it too. So yeah. Interesting. Good question, JD. What are you guys working on? Uh, same old, same old. I'm about 70,000 words into the latest. Um, starting to, to map out whatever my next project is going to be and just chugging along. I have a gripe about a stupid thing I did that's writing related. Do y'all want to know that? <laughs> what, is, what is your gripe? I got back into, um, so, so I started running more Amazon ads again. I hadn't been really running them for a while. And I was getting really, I feel like such a bonehead, but like you, it'll give you guys a laugh. But I, I ran some ads and I was doing some higher bids to kind of experiment with like, you know, trying to trying to get some more clicks and stuff like that. And I got about a weekend and I was looking at and, and none of my ads were showing what they were spending or what the results were. And I was like, I know it can take time to get results, but like a week is really weird. And I was kind of talking to my buddy T.W. Piperbrook about it. And he was like, yeah, you should have results by now. And I went in and looked and. I had a filter set where the last date it was showing was like January 17th of this year or something like that. (laughs) So, and so then I put it for the last 60 days or whatever, and I spent way more money than I wanted to. So tip to people, I'm sure Amazon does on purpose because they want to take your money, but those filters do not reset when you log out. I mean, I've, I've logged out, gone in out of that website a ton of times and like usually stuff like that, the filters reset. So, um, yeah, a little tip for everybody. So now, so now, so I was able to go in and shut off some ads and, um, you know, trying to, trying to get some of them working and, and doing some experimenting stuff, but I felt like a complete idiot. When I, noticed <laughs> that. I, I spoke recently to another author, um, who's making a switch from sci-fi to thrillers and I, I don't, I don't want to out the person, but they're going to be on the show, I think sometime soon. Um, but he spends a tremendous amount of money on, on Amazon ads. Um, and he put me in touch with his Amazon rep. Um, yeah, there's basically two different platforms. There's the Amazon marketing system that we current, you know, most authors use. Um, and there's another one where you can actually pay Amazon to do the marketing for you. Um, but there's a, a buy-in and I think it's $10,000 a month is like their, their bottom that you, you have to spend. So it, it's pretty hefty. Um, but I've got a call lined up with them. Um, one of the things that he brought up on the call, you know, which impacts me, I guess, more than other people um, that I never thought of before, but you know, like I've got a great blurb from James Patterson. He said, you know, don't miss anything that JD writes, James Patterson, great little blurb to, to throw on any kind of ad that I create because people tend to click on that. Um, but literally every author out there that writes anything remotely similar to a thriller targets James Patterson when they put their ads out on Facebook, on Amazon, on any of those, any of those things. So the, the click ratio is really high. Um, so he suggested I actually go after the co-authors rather than James Patterson, you know, target the co-authors names. Um, so I just created a bunch of ads uh, yesterday, actually, just to see how that's going to play out. Um, and I don't know if it's going to work or not, but, um, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm seeing those diminishing returns on the Facebook side every week and it's just, it's getting more and more frustrating. I'm just looking for other venues. Yeah, that is an interesting approach. You'll have to keep us up to date on how that works. Yep, absolutely. I can't wait for people to uh, want to get, uh, I I just lost all that. I was going to make a joke (laughs) about me and Jay writing together and people targeting him instead of me, but it fell apart. So I'm sure you're both targets, but probably for other reasons. Edit edit that out, Jeff. (laughs) I'm just joking. I don't care. Oh, so how about that queen? No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) Well, let's take care of some business uh, and then we'll get to our guest. 
Got to uh, give a shout out to our friends over there at Kobo Writing Life. They empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Remember at Kobo Writing Life, you get monthly promotional opportunities. Uh, you can set your price in all these different territories and countries. And you can do that without any exclusivity. So there's a link in the show notes or you can head there directly by going to KoboWritingLife.com. JD, who's up this week? All right, we've got Josh Mallerman coming back for time number three. Uh, he's going to talk about his latest novel. It's called Daphne, which releases September 20th. So here he is, Josh Mallerman. I think one of my favorite lines in this entire book is, there are no Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, big, that's the biggest bonding moment that the parents have, I think. That, that <laughs> <laughs> Mom and dad. Is it who are whose kiss? Yeah. <laughs> They're okay. You know, I mean, right? Oh man, I I know. Like selfishly, uh, we could just talk about the musical references in in Daphne all day, but I I'm gonna be mindful that there are other people listening to this recording, so uh, we'll, we'll we'll touch a little bit upon them. But September 20th, Daphne comes out. Uh, tell us about it. Well, first of all, I wanted to say this is my first interview well, uh, or podcast of talking about Daphne. So if I sound a little unrehearsed, I am. Good. And that's sometimes, yeah, as I said, <laughs> I think that's good too, right? Yeah. This was Bird Box, I, you know, like, not, and, and believe me, I love talking about Bird Box, but um, I would be, uh, I, I, I could, I could, I could hear like three words of the question and know what the question yep. is or something, you know? Yep. Um, Daphne, yeah, this is brand new. Even just you saying, tell us about it. I'm like, Shit. <laughs> well, okay, for listeners, Daphne is essentially about a uh, high school girls basketball team. Um, the main the main star of the book is Kit Lamb, who suffers from panic attacks, anxiety, and here seemingly is encountering one in the form of a, a person or a presence or a ghost or something, where if you can imagine for, for any listeners who... Um, are familiar with the distant tendrils of anxiety on its way, Kit feels and begins to sense and even smell Daphne on her way. So Daphne is a seven-foot behemoth former citizen or person that lived in Samhattan, Michigan, which a number of my books have been taking place there recently. And um, Daphne is dead. And... Kit and the other ballers are worried that possibly Daphne is coming for them anyway. Oh, I'll tell you, man, I, this was like a warm childhood blanket that I wrapped around me. This read like a love letter to the genre. Uh, can you talk about coming up with the idea and, and pursuing it and writing it? Yeah. Okay. So at first um, I have a collection of novellas called spin a black yarn. And through the years, that collection has changed. That's, where Ryan Lewis and I got the name for our production company is from that book. Um, it started with five other novellas, then those were released individually, all their places. Then it became a bunch of short stories that didn't materialize. And then eventually, re somewhat recently, I wrote five novellas for Spin of Black Young. Daphne was the lead off, and it was about 30,000 words, something like that. So it was a hefty first novella. And I, I kind of saw it as, I don't want to call it a fastball, but I saw it as like, if you were making like an album, it just felt like a great leadoff track. It, it seems like if you're going to let's hit the ground running rather than a, like a slow pace, you know, the second story maybe is slower, that kind of thing. It's definitely not a ballad. So I sent that into Del Rey and Trisha from Del Rey 
wrote me back with notes on everything, but she said, I actually, I think Daphne should be its own novel. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? You know, like what? And then um, she explained to me in just a few sentences how that was possible. And I was like, oh, wow, you're right. And I think that I had sort of the first time around, I had undersold like the idea to myself where it was more, it was just, it was more of like um, uh, passing fancy or something. You didn't really get to know each of the ballers very well. And you didn't really get to know a lot of things. Meanwhile, the actual plot itself hasn't changed at all. And now the book is 70,000 words. And it was a real lesson for me in how you can expand a novella to a novel without, um, what's the right word, without forcing the issue, mm-hmm. without ballooning it. Um, to me, the, the, the novel Daphne feels like it could be maybe twice as long. So, so that I want to first give credit to Trisha for recognizing like a novel where I thought only like a novella was. Nice. Nice. I mean, you got to come up with 40,000 words though. So how, how do you, how do you not bloat it? How do you just not stuff it? Well, because she kind of like underscored, like here are the elements that you have. Right. And you have McGowan, um, the detective in Sam Hatton, like she's always, or there's references to her coming close to crossing this line. What are we really talking about there? What line had she crossed before? Whereas in the novella, it was kind of like, she's just a loose cannon. Maybe you see what I mean? Something like that. Okay. And, and in terms like, like Kit's whole, um, I don't want to give too much away, but the scene with um, Pretty Hate Machine was already in there. And I mean, you can kind of tell centerpiece moments that must have already been in there. Um, but, and, and again, beginning, middle, end, still the same exact story. It was just letting it all breathe a little more. Mm-hmm. It was just letting it all like give a little more. Give me a little more about Kit. Give me, a, Josh, give me a little bit more about McGowan. Give me a little bit more about Daphne. And, and all of a sudden it goes from 30 to 40 and it feels like I didn't even like, I mean, I must have done that, those 40,000 words, I mean, maybe in a week or something. Wow. It was a really, Daphne and Bird Box was like this for me as well. Daphne was a fairly um, fluid experience, the novella and making it a novel. And, and so where the idea itself came from is that I'm like a huge basketball fan, like huge. And, you know, Alice and I have a rim outside. I go out every single day when I'm, you know, I'll write, a thousand words or something, then I go outside and shoot around for a while, you know, this kind of thing. And I've forever, I've wanted to, um, I tried writing a story. I wrote a, a novel about a track team years ago and I tried um, to come up with like a basketball scenario. I have this one where this kid had Larry Bird's poster in his bedroom and then he wakes up and Larry Bird's crouched next to his bed and he's, it struck me that this six, nine super pale guy in a green like uh, tank top is like a monster. <laughs> you know, I was like, Larry Bird's a monster, you know. So uh, it, it combines a lot of my uh things I'm most interested in basketball, horror, um, and anxiety. Yeah. And 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 all those together seem like okay, this is there's there are the ingredients here for like some yeah, yeah. We're 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 not gonna spoil, but uh the, the thing about anxiety, like this. I think that's really going to connect with a lot of people uh, because, you know, this, this whole idea of like, you know, asking the basketball hoop if something's going to happen or like I, I, that is just a parallel in, in so many people's lives. Is, is that, was that a personal thing for you or did you come up with that? Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I've done my whole life. Yep. Like really? Would, yep. And when I was 13 years old in the driveway shooting, I'd be like, um, am I going to make the basketball team? And I must have missed all those because I never did. Make <laughs> and I start and then I remember, um, you know, a little bit older and you start smoking grass and someone had like a magic eight ball. And I remember saying like, yeah, that, that's 
I that, that's like um, I used to do that with the rim yes. at my house. I would like, I would, you know, except we didn't have it is likely or absolutely. It was either yes or no. Yep. The, the rim was only yes or no. Yeah. Although there was a few where, and I don't know if I wrote this in Daphne, but if the ball rolled around before going in, maybe it'd be like yes, but might not happen for a minute. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you ever? Uh, did you ever do the one too where like you you can't you can't leave on a miss? Oh. Right. hundred percent. You yeah. gotta leave on a make. <laughs> Alex and I, no, when we, it, literally yesterday when we were shooting, uh, yeah, you have to leave on a make. Even if it's a layup, it doesn't have to be a pretty make, but it's gotta go it's in. It's gotta go in. Yeah. You can't leave <laughs> yeah. the court. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How did you, well, maybe, maybe I'm assuming here. It, this felt like it could have been set in the late eighties, early nineties. Was that ever a consideration? Did it ever cross your mind? It kind of crossed my mind because again, the um, the collection of novellas is all over the place time-wise. Um, one of them's at like, in like 1910. One of them is uh, like, you could say 2030. One of them is, uh, feels more like 2007. Another. So there was a sense of like, where does Daphne take place exactly? But eventually I wanted like, I wanted Daphne to be 80s, 90s, but Kit and her crew to be in that shadow, but still zooming, still texting, still like that kind of thing. I didn't, I almost felt like it would be doing the book a disservice if it was like, um, you know how sometimes you can feel a horror story intentionally puts the characters out of technology's range? And it almost feels like you get why they're doing that. Because with technology, it's too easy to call each other and call for help and this kind of thing. But it also feels to us as viewers like, well, okay, but we do all have phones now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, like, how do we, like, let's stop avoiding the issue. Let's actually face it. So I wanted Kit and them to be modern, but Daphne herself gave me the 90s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. It felt too as though it set up a nice generational tension between Kit and her parents or the adults in the story too. There were a lot of those sort of callbacks and, and explanations that worked really well. Well, one of the weirdest uh, revelations I had while writing it was that I'm her, I'm her parents age. Yeah. I'm writing, I was writing about Kit, like totally relating to her as a basketballer <laughs> and all this like stuff. And then when I was, and then when I was with her parents, I was like, Oh, I totally agree with them. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I could be Kit's dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, those are those are some of the, as, as you get older, those revelations are are less enjoyable, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, it was like it was a frightening moment because I, you know, it's real. I think there's a tendency for authors to um, primarily relate or anti-relate with their main character. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and between Daphne and Kit, the one I related to most, I think, was was Kit's parents. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Pretty Hate Machine and uh, we got the debate of, of whether or not Rush is heavy metal. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm totally I'm right. I'm right there with you. You do. You do something else I've noticed in, in many of your stories and that you you throw you put things in there that really make me think on on a deeper level. I'm going to give you an example because I don't even know if this is something you consciously do, but I so appreciate it. You had a line in there, or you had a passage in there about dogs being afraid to die in front of their owners. Where did that come from? Yeah, uh, that was when I was younger. We had a, this is a basketball story. I was shooting around in the backyard or in the driveway. 
And I heard like the screen door on our house like bust open and we had to go to a retriever that bolted and I saw it bolt. And he wasn't like a runner. And all of a sudden he was gone. His name was Nugget and he was gone. Nugget was gone. And I think mom got him back eventually. And she said to me, he was embarrassed to die in front of, in front of us. Cause like, she was like, Nugget's near the end. And he's like being self-conscious, doesn't want to die in front of us. He wants to die like alone. I'm like 14, 13. Wow. And that concept was huge to me because it was like, first of all, you at that age, you imagine death, you would want, you would want that to occur in the, with someone there to, for it to be a warm experience. You never saw it as something, you never thought of death as something you do. Like I dance, I sing in front of other people. I write, you and I are talking, I maybe eat in front of other people, but dying, you never think, oh, that is something you also do. So someone might want to be private about that. And so that was my first introduction to that kind of, that someone would even consider something like that at all. It was my mom wow. brought it up about the dog. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and it, that's what I mean. It's so layered because you talked about it in terms of the dog, but I, I immediately thought about it for the characters in the story. Like it yep. just had a resonance with all of the characters in the story, not just the dog. Right. Think about, I let's not spoil anything, but let's yeah. just think of a character that, that passes. Um, and to do so like in front of your mom in that way, no less, there is something like, I don't want to say embarrassing. It's the wrong word. But there's something like, this isn't how this story should end for me. Yeah. You know, like this yeah. isn't how I would end this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There also, th th it also feels like you're, you're placing a burden on someone else that you almost feel guilty about doing. Like you're, oh yeah, you know, like, cause once you go, your, your responsibilities are, are over, but like, you've just now sort of placed that on somebody else. Like, and, and not only the responsibilities, but like responsibilities coupled with like enormous, like emotional. Yes experience so you know my friend and i were just talking about this recently about how um funerals okay my friend's uncle passed away during covid right or during the lockdown and everything of covid and just two years later now that i went to the funeral for it and it was one of the most like like what's the right word like the funeral just felt warm felt like like they were like saying goodbye in a special way this tree was planted the the sister of the guy's sister was crying but like it wasn't grief that i was witnessing it was like send off and ceremony and i said to my to my friend like man maybe this is how all funerals should be like a year later this is done why why because as it stands if somebody passes i mean like three days later while you're out of your mind with the surreality of everything you're supposed to what like organize people yeah organize a, a, a ceremony, say something in front of people, all, all those kind of elements. And I was like, you know, no, this is the way to do it. I don't know what that would entail or the logistics involved in that. Um, maybe that'll be the business we start. You, you and I are going to start a business where we house all the bodies for a year. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so dark. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's not a funeral home. It's a, it's a uh, burial in waiting home. Oh, that's a fun book idea, isn't it? That's good. That could yeah. work. That could work. I mean, yeah. I'm not that far from you. We could do it in Michigan or Ohio, either one. You know, that would yeah. work. We'll do it right on the border. It'll there be you like, go. It'll be like, it'll be like just like the northern like suburb of Toledo or something. <laughs> well, I know you you talked a little bit about uh, you know this book coming out of a novella. Was there anything else in in the writing of Daphne that uh, surprised you? Was new? Something you tried a little differently? Yeah, I think that um, 
before. So when I wrote about that track team, it was also a high school story. And I don't think that was, um, I tried to write that. That was like the second book I ever tried to write. Mm. And I don't think that I had a grasp on like how Kit and her friends would interact like I do now. That doesn't mean that I'm like so perfect or, or well-versed in how like a high schooler behaves right now. I'm not like a teacher or something. I'm not around it all the time. But just like that sense of, hey, Josh, you're writing about 17, uh, 16, 17, 18 years like be aware of that and be loose with that. Like, I think that there's a tendency for a young writer um, to think, oh, if I'm writing a team then I need to dumb it down. No, 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 no. It's not dumbing it down. It's just, it's different. And in a lot of cases, it's actually looser. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just becoming self-aware versus like, you know, um, a, like Mallory, who's already completely self-aware by the time uh, Bird Box starts. And so like to just to be aware of those things, like still all the lofty philosophy you want and thoughts you want, but maybe a 17 year old, that would be, they would be new to that. And when I was trying to write that it, it, as a second book, I, I just, I didn't understand that concept at all yet. So that surprised, that I wouldn't say it surprised me, but that was like a lovely thing to discover. I was like, oh, I can write kid. I get her. Yeah. 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 You have, um, this might be this might be borderline discussion on anxiety. Uh, you you're in a very um, unique and and enviable and well earned position in that you had a, a massive breakout hit. Uh, how do you like? How do you how do you write the next novel with those sort of expectations out there? I mean, what what is your expectation for Daphne? I guess is what I'm asking. Man, so much to say about this one. What a great question. What a great question. I mean. I have like like the answer I would give anyone or that I would give you if you and I were sitting at the bar and I feel like I should just, even if it sounds flighty, I'm gonna give it anyway, is that um, back when the High Strong, the band I'm in for listeners, when we all lived in New York City, um, I had a moment where we were all partying upstairs. Everyone's like getting wasted and all these people are there. And, and I went down into, and I was already trying to write books then and we were recording songs and I, I went down into the basement um, that was where we recorded is in this basement area and I was alone and I made this conscious effort to um I told myself to put writing of books and songs somewhere safe because there are um there's partying upstairs there's drinking there's drugs there's um trying to make out upstairs there's trying to make your friends laugh upstairs there's the success of what you're recording or not success of what you're recording upstairs there's the um, uh, going somewhere with this or not, living off this or not, like all these things that could determine how you feel about the song or book that you're working on. And I made, I swear I made a conscious effort to put that stuff in a safe place. And I feel that it has been there ever since where when the band was touring like crazy and where 200 something shows a year were playing for an average of 20 people a night. Okay, great. Great. Uh, and then we're excitedly working on the next novel or I'm sorry, the next album. And like, there was always a sense of like, eh, something happens, something happens. Great. Then with Bird Box, holy cow, something happens like an absolute breakthrough. What, what is going on here? But when I sat down to work on even what was the book that fucked? Um, because um, because the, the real like New York Times bestseller and all that stuff didn't happen until the movie. And I think I'm trying to remember, I think I wrote, um, doesn't matter. But the, whatever books immediately followed that, there was this sense of like, oh boy, 
right? Now you're like, now you're in the show, right? Now you're in the league, let's say, like you're on one of the teams in major league horror or something, right? Even if there's hundreds of us, you're, you're, in, you're in the show. And there was that same fucking voice was like, it, it's in a safe spot, don't worry. Like, I believe that there was, um, there is a way to almost double think this where you can say to yourself, um, this, has, this has to be good. This has to be the best that you can give me. Like, let's make this like, no, 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 let's, uh, where can we find signature moments? Where can we find this? Um, where can we, uh, do you need this? Do you need that? You can give it your all. And at the same time, you can think to yourself like, hey man, it's just a book. And I think that both those thoughts can like exist at once. I have this like idea that once you kind of embrace spectacular failure, not of yourself, but in like in other people, and other like works of art, once you say like, hey, that movie was interesting because it was such a failure, like, like what they were trying to do was such a failure. Once you embrace that, you kind of are now embracing the whole spectrum because we all embrace the great. And then you think to yourself, well, wow, the ones that just fell flat on their face. And I don't mean like the hollow, like, so, I mean, someone really went for it and, and it failed or something. And once you kind of embrace that whole spectrum, then it makes writing yourself a lot, a lot easier. Because you're like, because it's all spectacular on this like spectrum, whether it's a success or it's not. And so, I don't know, I was able to, there was some in the room with me, there was some like, like, oh my, like, you know, if you um, wrote The Shining right now, following Bird Box, that this could like solidify you in some, you know, like career way, like these thoughts cross your mind. But then at the same time, you're like, Hey man, like you're, you've been writing like nonstop for like 20 something years and just, just out of, from that safe space, just, just stay there. Let's keep writing. Mm -hmm. And, and, and yeah. And that definitely outweighed the quote unquote pressure of it. Yeah. Well, kudos to you, man, for, for being able to compartmentalize like that, because yeah. uh, I mean the, you know, the whole starving artist, the broke musician that, you know, the, the broke author, those, those are cliches or tropes for a reason. <laughs> You know, yeah. many, many people have that. I mean, uh, where does the, the financial expectation or the financial pressure factor in for you, or does it not? Well, it does in terms of like, I, like, I don't want to like let Delray down. And then also with bird, when bird box happened, um, I bought the first house I've ever bought in my life. Um, I was 44 cause now I'm 47. So this is only a few years ago, you know, and when that movie and all that happened. And I'm like, so there is some sense of like, we, but I mean, we already bought the house though. So it's like, there's some sense of like wanting to maintain where like some level that you're at. But I don't look at that at like, um, Bird Box did like, uh, was on the bestseller. So now the next book has to be on. Yeah. I don't see it like that at all. Yeah. I see it like, it's like, we have to steadily put out, you know, awesome books and steadily just keep writing awesome books. And that's, and that's really all, you can, I feel like I can ask of myself. I, I do feel like there are some writers that you can, and again, this is sort of brought up before, where you can sense that they're attempting to write a bestseller and some people are actually really freaking good at it. And that's interesting in and of itself, where you don't necessarily feel like you're in the hands of an artist, but you are in the hands of someone that knows how to do this. And that's interesting. And I'm just, I'm not that guy. And Burn Box, if Burn Box it's breakthrough and all that. If that was a quote unquote, like fluke that a strange book like that broke through. Well, great. I'm like the most blessed person alive, but I, I look at it more like keep writing, keep putting stuff out and, and 
there'll be another one that, uh, or another one will raise up the ones around it or whatever. It's just, it's a little less strategy and a little more spirit. It's a little more pell-mell than it is practical. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I may be so bold as to say, I, I think you, you represent for me sort of that iconic Midwestern Rust Belt work ethic. Like you, you just show up and you do the work. And as you said, you've been writing books for 20 years. And when you bought your house, you bought it in Michigan. You didn't buy it in the Hollywood Hills. Like you, you, you seem to be very grounded to me and very connected to your art in a way that man, helps to manage those expectations. Yep. On, I, uh, well, when you say connected to your art, a hundred percent. I mean, there's authors that, you know, they probably turn red if you ask them if they were an artist, you know, like yeah. there's some like, Oh no, 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 I'm not an artist. Like is the, that word sounds pretentious or something. No way. I'm all about that, man. Because I think that the the mistake there is that the word artist isn't as serious as some people think it is. And, and I think that um, <clears throat> I absolutely have a healthy relationship with the art itself where there's like this respect. That doesn't mean that you can't write the most messed up thing in the world. Of course, it doesn't mean that, but it means respect. Like, um, let's say you're working on a, on a rough draft and you got wasted with your buddies last night. And so you wake up and you're like, Ooh, and you're, and you're like supposed to do this thing in the morning. Guess what? You got to go do it. You got to work on it because you can't not do it because of what you did last night. If you finish the book and then you and your buddies have, and then the next day, take the next day off. Yeah, that, that's fine. But don't sell this book short for anything. Like I was saying, for partying, for uh, for love, for um, relationships, for for anything. Don't sell the book you're working on short. And then I think that that respect is the kind of thing where, like, when you see it um, on a shelf, like a Barnes Noble or an indie store anywhere, it, it's almost like you feel the respect back from the book. Like you, like I know Goblin came from a true place. I know Unmarried Carol came from a true place. So when I meet them in a bookstore, there's a sense of, oh, friend. And I think that thing, that respect coupled with, as you said, like just work, get the work done. That's a, that's like that making something a healthy artist um, art relationship. Yeah. Love it, man. That's why I always love talking to you. Uh, before we wrap it up, um, what are you working on now? What's next? What's coming on? What's coming down the pipeline? So I just got the... I got these notes back really fast. I finished the rewrite of Spin of Black Yarn. That does not include Daphne. It includes um, other ones. Um, I got, I finished that rewrite like two weeks ago, sent it in, and I just got the notes back yesterday for it. So I am going to, tonight, I'm going to work on that. Um, and also, I wrote a book recently that I feel really, really good about, and it was somewhat unexpected. We, Allison and I, um, have been together for 10 years and she's had this one cat for 16 years and Frankie, the cat, it's a girl short for Frankenstein. Uh, I've, as long as I've known Allison, I've known Frankie and Frankie passed recently. And it was, it was, man, it was rough. It was, it was heavy uh, when this happened. And that night Allison started making a mural of Frankie on like the foyer, sort of the walk-in, like the hallway over there on the wall there. And it's amazing. It's huge. It's like bigger than Allison is. And, and uh, it's already great. And she probably has a long way to go. And I was like, you know what? Because in the first place Allison I ever lived in, we used to write on the walls all the time and book ideas and paintings. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to write on my, on my walls too. So in this sort of like emotional moment, Allison's painting Frankie out there. And I was writing sort of an outline sort of notes on like a new, like very vague book idea. 
like a few days later, I started that book and, and, and finished it. And like, like a, in like 28 sessions or something. And that book, it's called Incidents Around the House. And I think that that one, it, I have a feeling that one's going to be coming out sooner than later. All right. Before we summarize uh, a conversation with Josh, I want to give uh, all of you a reminder that if you're looking to, uh, to create professional print books and eBooks easily, uh, there's an all-in-one book writing software called Atticus. It comes with a book editor with word count, goal tracking, cloud storage, and honestly, you can format your book in three steps or less. So if you're interested in checking out Dave Chesson and his crew over there at Atticus.io, uh, definitely want to give it a look. All right, Josh Mallerman. Uh, dang, guys, I I just so enjoyed talking to this guy. Um, I mean, he's a great writer, of course, but he's just a really entertaining interview as well. Jay, let's start with you. Um, Daphne Mallerman, what are your thoughts? I, honestly, like I, you know, I've known Josh for for a while now, and and this was probably one of my favorite books of his, um, for one of the reasons that you brought up. You know, it, it completely took me back to the '80s. Like I felt like I was watching an '80s horror movie. You know, with with every page that I flipped there, and it, you know, it was still an, a fairly original idea. You know, so like that's that's not an easy thing to do, um, but like, I can totally see this thing being on Netflix like a week from now, and, it, and it's probably already <laughs> in the works. It just it, everything about it just you know screamed you know '80s horror movie, but you know done done modern um you know i honestly thought it was kind of funny when he he mentioned like you know they, they still use cell phones they, you know like he said it in modern times but it still has that vibe of of the 80s and he purposely didn't want to go there um i, I thought that was kind of interesting and that, that was actually a conscious thought on his part yeah i thought that whole concept he talked about there of how you know calling out authors in a way you know who try to ignore technology and i mean i'm saying that as someone who like that's a big advantage to writing post-apoc fiction is that you get to totally like throw all the technology out the window. And um, so I thought that was a really, really cool concept he brought up of just like tackling that straight on and not, you know, being one of those authors and um, how he kind of enjoyed the challenge that that creates having to work around that sort of stuff. Um, I'll tell you another thing I loved, and maybe this could raise a question for you guys. Um, I thought it was really cool him talking about, uh, you know, how this story started out as a novella. Um, and, and it was someone else who was like, I think he says editor, right at Del Rey, um, who was like, no, nah, I think you have a whole novel here. And, um, like I, I've had that happen. I, I wrote a, um, empty bodies, which was my first book I put out, which did really well was like that started out as a short story. Um, and then I had another book that my editor, a story my editor read and was like, you should turn this into a full book and it ended up being a novel. Um, have any, you guys done that? Like, is there anything you guys have on the market, um, that, started out that way and became a full novel? Not for me personally. I mean, everything that I write, I tend to go long and then I just, I trim stuff away and try to get it to a, a decent novel length. Um, but when I was doing the, the book doctor ghostwriter thing, I, I dealt with a lot of these um, because somebody would write a really good story. Um, you know, they turn it in, they'd get an agent, it would end up on a, an editor's desk and be like, I really want to publish this, but it's 35,000 words. What am I going to do with it? Um, so like I was brought in in order to work with the author to help them get that story to where it needed to be. And, and I don't want to go into too much detail here, but just for people that are listening that are 
interested in that process, what we would typically do is we would storyboard it. You know, we'd go through the, the novella of, you know, whatever they actually had, those 20, 30, 40,000 words. And we'd take the, the major story beats and we put them up on a board in order. Um, and then we would look for things sort of like what Josh had mentioned. You know, you find, you know, he had a police detective that had a sordid past, but he didn't touch on it in a novella. You know, if you want to expand the story, you can touch on it. You know, there's another 5,000 words. Um, so we would, you know, kind of go through the story beats looking for those things. You know, what, what makes sense? What can be, you know, exploited and, you know, it, that will take the story further um, because that's a, it's a very tricky tightrope to walk because if you don't go through that type of exercise, then you're just adding fluff. You're basically adding all the stuff that I would normally take out of a book, you know, to get, to get it published. Well, I, and I, I feel like authors who, who have that problem, like, I feel like that's part of what they're scared of is they're, they're scared of specifically like, you know, the soggy middle, you know, having, having to fill the space in the middle of a book specifically, like, they come to it, they have a great way to start their story. They have a great way to end it and a great concept, but they get caught up, like not wanting to just have a bunch of fluff in the middle. And so, yeah, that's, that's really, really good advice for that sort of thing. So uh, JD, I wanted to ask you about, um, I, I got into more mindset stuff with Josh this time, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Um, uh, maybe personal insecurities, anxiety, maybe some imposter syndrome. Uh, in a way, it was kind of comforting to know that a guy at that level is still kind of dealing with the same issues that the rest of us are. Uh, is What's your take on that, I guess, is what I'm asking. I can tell you it doesn't go away. You know, like I've had conversation with, with James Patterson, with Dean Koontz about this very thing. And like they literally sit down to write the book and they feel it. You know, so like this is not, you know, like as you're writing a book, it's just it's, you know, like a lot of times from the author's standpoint, it feels like crap. You know, like you're writing this story, you know how it ends, you know how it began. Um, you know, so it's like it's it's difficult to wrap your head around that as a reader. Um, and they they all feel that I think Josh hit on something that was, you know, like it's he, he you know, he struck lightning with with Bird Box. And that's a very difficult thing. And I saw it a lot when I was working back in the music business. You know, somebody would have a you know a hit song that came out. You know, I, I knew, you know, Vanilla Ice, Robert Van Winkle when Ice Ice Baby came out. Like, how do you top that? He literally got a movie deal based on a song. You know, people still play that that stupid record. Um, but he had to write another album. You know, like that is pressure. Um, and honestly, I think it's a lot better to, to, you know, have a slow burn, you know, your career, just have it steadily build. You know, Jeffrey Deaver is a great example, I think, of that. I mean, his first book, you know, Bone Collector did great. Um, but, you know, his career itself has just been built on the fact that he's got a large catalog. Um, you know, Gillian Flynn, I guess, you know, is very similar to, to Josh in a way because she had two books out that, you know, she had written. They were good, but they didn't really sell particularly well. Um, you know, Bert, her, her next one, you know, Gone Girl. Like she had no idea she was writing Gone Girl while she was writing Gone Girl. Nobody knew it was going to do as well as it did. A lot of publishers didn't even want it um, because it just it seemed like an odd story to them. Um, but maybe that's what it took. But the, the bottom line is she put her butt in a chair and she wrote every single day. And you just kind of take all that noise and just put it off to the side. And that, that's what Josh did. You know, you just you, it happened. It was cool. It was great. But, you know, go back to what you know, which is, you know, he mentioned he'd been writing for 20 some years, you know, same process. There's no reason to change it. See, and <clears throat> that's one, that's, that's one of the biggest takeaways I had from this conversation was there was a certain contentment and peace in Josh's voice when he was talking about that, like not content from the standpoint of, well, I've already had my big hit. I don't have to work hard anymore, but, it, but, uh, a, an idea, the idea that he didn't, he didn't really feel like he had to top himself. Like, and I think that that's really telling, I mean, because, and that's a hard thing to face when you have a hit, like he did with bird box, 
know, he was, he was like, I, I love, you know, like you said, JD, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. You know, he, he, he doesn't get lost on the art side of it too, which I think is a really big deal. You know I mean? This is a business and we do at times have to look at it as a business, but there are a lot of authors out there. And I'll admit I've, I've been guilty of this who are afraid to call themselves an artist, you know, and he's in a very cool position where, you know, yes, there are the pressures of having to deliver for his editors and stuff, but he's also not getting lost on the art, uh, on the art side of it. And, you know, he's, he seems pretty content. You know, he said, I bought my house. Like it was almost like a, what else do I really need sort of thing with him, which I, I really, really appreciate. Yeah. You know, we've got the same agent, which we've talked about before and, and his, his next book after bird box, it was called black mad wheel. Um, and that wasn't the original title. I forget what the original title was. Um, but our, Kristen, our agent sent me a, an early copy of it and I, and I read it and I was like, this is nothing like bird box. And I was like, Congratulations. You know, like I was so thrilled that he didn't write Bird Box 2, you know, as, as his follow up. Um, you know, he eventually did write a sequel to Bird Box, but he had two or three other books in between there. And I think that was such a smart move, you know, because if he would have come out with something just like Bird Box for the next book, he would have been stuck, you know, even if it sold well, if it sold well, it'd be even worse because he would be stuck in this thing where he had to just keep writing Bird Box over and over again. And instead, he wrote a completely different story. And, and that, you know, I, I, I had a lot of respect for him when I saw that. You know, one of the things that I wanted to to bring up here um, outside of the interview um, in the conversation with Josh, because I think it's it's easy from the outside for for a listener to think, well, that's Josh Mallerman. Like, I'm, I don't have a bird. I don't have a bird box problem. Right. Um, I, I don't have a problem of deciding where I'm going to buy my house. But Josh didn't start there. And, and the other the one thing that he said during the interview that really stuck with me was he talked about respecting the craft and respecting the art. And he said, like, you don't, you don't go out partying and then not write the next day because you were out partying. But he's like, but that's different if you finish the book and then you go out partying. And in that case, you've sort of, you, you've sort of met your obligation to the art and you're respecting it. And, and, and that would, that just, for me, that crystallized this, I, the work ethic piece, right? It's, it's not to say you can't have fun. It's not to say you can't take time off and do things on your own. But but you can't disrespect the art um, by like taking us an unnecessary sick day for for lack of a better term. Yeah, and it's important to remember. And I mean, I think this is an important thing to look at with most people. Like Josh was not an overnight success. You know, I mean, it's he had been writing for you know we've talked to him on other interviews for he's been writing for years and he had a bunch of trunk novels. You know, and and I remember him talking about being in a position where. I think it, maybe it was after Bird Box, uh, you know, where he went to his agent or whoever and was like, yeah, I have like a whole bunch of books here to choose from. That I've I mean, he's he's been writing because he loves it and, you know, he shows up and, and does it and stuff. It's not like, yeah. So I, I think that that's a really important thing for people to remember as well. I mean, Bird Box was one of those trunk novels. Novels that that yeah. wasn't actually the book that he was going to submit. You know, when it came to trying to get an agent and a publisher, he, he was working something else, and they they pulled that one out and decided, well, let's go with this one instead. Um, so even Josh didn't realize, you know, after finishing it, that Bird Box could be what it was. Um, so yeah, you just you just never know. I mean, the work ethic is is huge, particularly in a career like this. I mean, you're literally in a room all by yourself, you know, make, making stuff up. No, nope, nobody is cracking a whip behind you. You know, you may get the occasional phone call from an editor or a publisher trying to figure out where you're at with something. Uh, but nobody's going to ride you. Nobody's going to keep you on task uh, except for yourself. And like, you need to have that work ethic in order to do it. You know, and, and, and Josh mentioned like he, you know, he, 
he practically sneezed out his latest novel. He's like, you know, Allison started painting on the wall. He walked down the hallway and he had a book by the time he got back to his desk. Um, you know, but that's, that's work ethic too. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure he probably sat there and worked until two, three, four o'clock in the morning or whatever, just, you know, these long, crazy sessions and just pounded this thing out as fast as he did. Um, I'm not that guy. Like I, I'm perfectly happy writing my 2000 words a day and, and picking up and going and having fun for the rest of the day. But you know, it's, it's very respectful or respectable that he, he's able to do that. Yeah. C- couldn't agree more. I mean, he's just, he's just such a great guy. I mean, uh, I, I hope he comes back every time he has a book out. I, there, I learn something about something every time I talk to him, and he's just so full of life. You know, he's just a—he's just one of my one of my favorite guests for that reason. He just—he brings it every time. You know, he's not phoning in the interview, and I, and I think he's got a respect for the listener too. So, uh, Josh, if you're listening, uh, thanks, man. We really we really appreciate you coming on. JD, who's up next week? Next week, we've got Jeffrey Archer. Uh, Jeff is one of the world's best-selling authors. He's got sales over 275 million copies in 97 countries. Um, His latest title is called Next in Line and releases September 27th. Excellent. Looking forward to it. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc., Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.